fabulous people, welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Can you believe this is the 98th episode? I can't. You're all still here. I appreciate it so, so much. We are back, hopefully, to normal now. Uh, last week, there were two editions. We're not going to do that again. Not for the foreseeable future, at least. I think you've suffered enough, honestly. So this week, just Reggie here again with an hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And we will start with news. News of a viewy kind of nature. Because it's impossible to talk about anything that's essentially inherently political without your own opinion sneaking in. And we need to talk, folks, about the WGA strike. The WGA, of course, is the Writers Guild of America. And if you partake of any American movies or TV, then they were written by members of the WGA. Why does that matter? That matters because the WGA is right now on strike. That means nobody is writing anything for Hollywood. Hollywood has reacted less than well. I think it's fair to say. Now, this, of course, is not the first time the WGA has taken strike action. In, I think it was 2014, the Writers Guild of America went on strike because essentially, well, essentially with the same reason they're on strike now. We'll talk about that in a minute. What happened then was an awful lot of reality telly suddenly hit our screens. I don't think that's going to happen this time. Largely because so much of, in heavy air quotes, reality television is in fact scripted, or at least semi-scripted. So you might watch, I don't know, The Real Housewives of somewhere you didn't think was glamorous. They probably are reflecting things that have actually happened, but the thing you see on screen might not be the thing as it happened. It might be a recreation of the thing that actually happened to increase its drama and make sure they get the right camera angle. And some scripting is involved in even that. So I don't think anything is completely unscripted anymore. And if it's got a script, it's got a writer. And if it's got a writer, the writer ain't writing it right now. So what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that some of the stuff that's in pre-production is going to be delayed. You can't continue from pre-production into production if nobody's written your script. It also means that things that are in production will also either be delayed or not be as good as they could have been. Why? Well, TV and movies are not like plays. If you do drama at school and you do a play, your drama teacher will give you a script. And you will work from that script. And you might ad-lib, but that doesn't really count as writing because the actor does that sort of spontaneously. That's not how TV and movies work. OK, so American TV and movies, which are written sometimes differently than they are in the UK, will start in what they call the writer's room, where you will have a bunch of writers bouncing ideas off each other, working stuff out until... Eventually, you come to a script. Now, that script is not usually final. What will happen then is 
assuming the thing gets greenlit and all of that, the script will go out to the people who are making the show or the movie. It'll go to the cast. It'll go to the director, the, cin the cinematographer, the, the lighting guy, all of that stuff. And then eventually you get around to making the thing and everyone gets onto set. And you might find that something isn't working. And so you need something to change. Or you might find that, you know, on that particular day, the actor playing somebody has, you know, broken their leg or, and, you know, you need to compensate for something. Particularly on TV, this happens. And so you need to just maybe alter some lines to make them make sense. Well, you have a writer right there on set to sort that out so that you get consistency in telling you the same people are involved in doing rewrites on set as are involved in the writer's room. So, you know, there's a, a, a cohesion to it. You know, it doesn't suddenly sound like someone's changed their character. That's not happening right now. And you might not think that's important, but it is. So one of two things is happening. Either the people who are making the shows have something that Hollywood appears to have forgotten mostly about called integrity and loyalty. And those people are saying, yeah, guys, uh, we don't have any writers. So until that dispute is resolved, we ain't making nothing. Big shout out to the Duffer Brothers of Stranger Things fame, who have done just that. They're not the only people, but they're the people who I saw on the internet this morning doing this. And they are basically saying, look, we're not going to work without writers. And we're also members of the WGA, so we ain't doing no writing ourselves. So until this issue is resolved to everyone's satisfaction and the strike is over, then we cannot make our show. Sorry, Netflix, you're going to have to wait. Other shows run by people with less integrity, I'm going to say. They're going, you're right, fine, whatever, we'll figure it out. Uh, shows such as The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime and Andor on Disney Plus are doing this. Uh, because, you know, of course they are. They're owned by Jeff Bezos and Disney. These people are not your friends. So they're going ahead and the actors are just going to have to deal with the script that they've got, whether it works or not. And it's not going to be as good. Now, there will be some of you saying, well, I heard The Rings of Power was rubbish anyway. Well, The Rings of Power was not. The Rings of Power was great. I really enjoyed season one. I suspect season two is going to be of lower quality. And it won't be the actor's fault. It won't be the director's fault. It will be the fault of the people who've put them in the position of having to do their job with one hand tied behind their back because they don't have the writing support. And essentially, the fact that people like Amazon Prime and Disney Plus are prepared to do this sort of explains why the the dispute exists in the first place. Basically, the issue is that writers simply aren't paid their worth by Hollywood. They're just not. Now, I've seen some discourse on the internet because of course I have. Along the lines of, well, you know, I think people should be paid what they're worth, but at the same time, I can't really get behind writers complaining that they're badly paid when we have nurses and doctors and teachers who are badly paid. 
And yeah, but that's a nonsense argument. Just logically, it's a nonsense argument. Nurses in America, or anywhere else for that matter, are not badly paid because writers are getting all the money. That's not how that works. Okay, that's a different, separate issue, unless you want to take it on a kind of workers of the world unite class war kind of basis, in which case all workers who are badly paid should are part of the same fight. I don't think anyone in the Writers Guild of America wants to take it that far, to be honest. Uh, there are very few revolutionaries among them. What they are saying is, look, we get paid peanuts, literally peanuts. There's this idea that if you work for Hollywood or if you work in TV, you must be incredibly well paid. And it's simply not true. Yes, there are artists, there are writers who make shed loads of money. Neil Gaiman has been quite vocal about this by pointing out, yes, I am one of those writers who makes a shed load of money and I'm on strike. And I'm on strike, says Neil Gaiman, in support of the people who don't make shed loads of money and who can't afford to pay their rent. And that's most writers in Hollywood. It, it, it's ridiculous to think that they're well paid. They're not. And yes, you might get $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000 for a screenplay. How many screenplays do you think a writer writes in a year? Because if you were curious, the number is significantly less than one on average. Okay, You might sell that screenplay for $30,000, let's say. And you might have to live off that for three or four years before you get another decent paying gig because these people are not salaried. And I've heard another discourse on the internet that says, well, that's not my problem. I want my stories. I want my shows. And I sympathise. My God, I'm a geek. I don't want to have to wait for the next series of Stranger Things. Those kids are going to be in their 40s at this rate. But I'm not prepared. I am simply not prepared to have my entertainment at the expense of other people, at the expense of other people's actual lives. Not doing it. I support the strike, in case you hadn't noticed. And there are reasons for this. Um, yes, I am a lefty. Yes, I am a member of a union. Um, but that's not why, actually. My why is a matter of, of simple justice. Basically, what is happening at the moment is writers write and they get paid eventually. And they get paid, I don't know, you know, whatever they're contracted to. Scale and uh, scale rates in America are not particularly generous. Unless you're a big name, you ain't making a lot of money. And that's it. Now, there are agreements in place that, you know, if you write an episode of Star Trek, let's say, and you get paid, and then that episode of Star Trek is repeated, then you'll get a little bit of money from that. Yeah, a percentage, a very small percentage, and we're talking less than 1%, of the profit, profit, mark you, that the studio makes from the repeat of that episode that you wrote, you will get. And, you know, I mean, there are many, many, many writers in Hollywood who get checked, regularly get checks for like less than one cent. But, you know, you do, you get something at least. Your input is recognised. Bearing in mind that the thing would not exist if the writer hadn't written it in the first place. But that only applies, that agreement in the contract only applies if the episode is repeated on television. 
or if the episode is sold to a television network. If it's streamed, the writer gets nothing. Now, where is all the money being made in Hollywood right now? Oh, is it streaming? Yes, it is. So who's actually making all the money? Not the people who made the thing. Not the writers. It's not just about writers. It's not the writers. It's not the directors. It's not the cinematographers. It's often not even the actors. It's the producers. It's the suits. It's the people who essentially are profiting off other people's work who are making the money. And they are desperately clinging to their millions while the writers who make it possible are living out of their cars. And I'm not even exaggerating at this point. So it's a question to me of simple fairness. And if that means that there are going to be some Marvel movies that are held up, if that means that I have to wait for the next series of Stranger Things, then so be it. And yes, I am cross about it, but I am not. I refuse to be cross with the writers. I am cross with the people who have pushed the writers into that position. Because again, I, I've seen a lot of discourse on the internet, and I think quite a lot of his bots Along the lines of, you know, greedy writers messing with things, you know, the fans want their stories, that these characters belong to the fans. Well, well, first of all, no, they don't. Uh, if you think that any of these properties belong to the fans, you are sadly deluded. They probably ought to, but they don't. They belong to the studios. And if you have a problem with the fact that your TV show or your movie ain't coming out when it should, your issue is not with the writers or anybody else who is involved in actually physically making the thing. Your issue is with the studios. I keep seeing articles on, in like Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and stuff, you know, sort of saying uh, the WGA strike delays this, or the WGA strike means that this won't now happen. And I want those headlines rewritten to the studio's refusal to give people a fair wage has caused the delay or the cancellation. Because that's what it's about. So, uh, yeah, other workers and all of that. And um, we'll see how this plays out. Last time, as I said, we ended up with a load of reality TV and a general coarsening and lowering of quality. I suspect the same thing will happen. And we're just going to just gonna have to buy it. There's not a lot we can do about it, I'm afraid. Uh, unless the studios come to their senses and actually start valuing the people who make the thing that makes the money. In no other industry would we be having this conversation, basically. So, yeah. So that's all very bad, and I'm very sad about it. And um, now I'll get off my soapbox. Was that the boring preachy pot? I think that might have been the boring preachy pot. I can probably find time to do another boring preachy pot. You know what I'm like. But anyway, let's move on. To something... Not completely unrelated. Neil Gaiman, who I have just mentioned, has done two things this week. He has announced that Sandman Season 2 will not be breaking the WGA strike, which means Sandman Season 2 is likely to be delayed. So that's two things on Netflix that Netflix is kind of depending on that aren't now going to happen on the timescale Netflix wants. Unless Netflix gets its writer's contract sorted out. 
But that's not why I'm mentioning Neil Gaiman. Oh, no. No, we have had another announcement. Over at Amazon Prime, things have been happening. Pre-strike things have been happening. Good Omens Season 2, a show that I am at the same time incredibly keen to see and also slightly nervous is not quite the right word. Ambivalent, I think, is perhaps the right word. But July 28th, that's when it drops. Episode 1 of Season 2 of Good Omens, starring Michael Sheen and David Tennant as the angel Aziraphale. And the demon Crowley is back. Now, why am I ambivalent about it? Season one was exceptionally good. And season two, from what I've seen, various clips and whatnot, suggests, well, it it looks good. It is completely showrun by Neil Gaiman, which is a good sign. But, 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 but. Good Omens is not solely a Neil Gaiman project. Good Omens, in fact, was a collaboration between Neil Gaiman, a very young Neil Gaiman, who was really just starting out. I mean, it's just a young Neil Gaiman to the point that when I bought Good Omens, it was not his name on the cover that made me buy it all the way back in, what would it have been, 1990 probably, no, the name on the cover that attracted me to Good Omens, the novel, was not Neil Gaiman's. It was Terry Pratchett's. Now, Sir Terry Pratchett, or just plain Terry Pratchett as he was back then, is an iconic writer. I mean, I, I can't think of a writer that's had more of an influence on me. I've spoken about him on the show before. Now, the thing that primarily differentiates the genius writer Neil Gaiman, from the genius writer Sir Terry Pratchett, is that the genius writer Sir Terry Pratchett is no longer with us. Uh, he was taken by Alzheimer's disease, um, which he referred to as the embuggerance, in, uh, what, 2015 now. It's been a long time since Sir Terry's been gone. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if you read Good Omens, and I really recommend that you do, if you have not read Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens, I suggest you do, because it is brilliant. If you are unfamiliar with the story of Good Omens, uh, season one of the TV version is available to watch on Amazon Prime, and again, I would suggest that you do that. But if you're unfamiliar, basically, it's, it's a riff on various end-of-the-world tropes. It leans heavily on the Omen series of films. Basically, the idea is that the devil, Lucifer, the adversary himself, has decided that it's time for the final battle between heaven and hell. To which end, he introduces his son, the Antichrist, to earth. According to prophecy, once the young man grows into his full powers, that will trigger Armageddon. The four horsemen will ride and heaven and hell will have their final confrontation, which the devil, Lucifer, the adversary himself, 
believes hell will win. Heaven is fully aware that this is going on. Heaven is quite keen for this confrontation to occur because heaven is quite quite sure that it is an altercation that heaven will win. Both are fairly clear that Earth and humanity will be utterly annihilated in the battle, but honestly, neither side particularly cares. Hell says, well, you know, we're hell. What? what? And heaven says, well, all the deserving humans will come to heaven. And that's a bonus, surely. There is, however, a spanner in those works. Both heaven and hell have their agents on Earth. Hell has the demon Crowley, who was there as the serpent in the Garden of Eden and has been with humanity since their creation, therefore. Heaven has Aziraphel, the angel, who was the guardian at the gates of the guardian, the guardian, the guardian at the gates of the garden, different words, very definitely different words, of Eden. Indeed, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and were compelled to leave the Garden of Eden, it was Aziraphel who ushered them out. And because he felt sorry for them, he gave them his flaming sword because, well, it was cold. She was expecting already. And that's Aziraphel, a very compassionate creature. He's been with humanity, too, since that very beginning. And the problem there for both Aziraphale and Crowley is that they quite like people and they quite like each other. They are technically on opposite sides, but in the way that you do when you're constantly exposed to a competitor and you never see head office, they've become sort of friends. I mean, it is Aziraphale's job to thwart the wiles of the evil one and, you know, if Aziraphale were to see a wild, he would very definitely thwart it. And it is Crowley's mission to sow misery and mischief. And he does that very well. If you've ever driven on the M25, that's one of his. But neither of them are particularly up for the end of the world. And so, whilst neither is able to directly interfere, that's sort of exactly what they do. You see, there is a loophole. Aziraphale has been given very clear instructions. He is not to prevent the apocalypse. That's definitely something he should not be doing, which is fine. But because the apocalypse is being caused by, you know, hell, on an individual case-by-case basis, if he sees something happening, he can intervene. That's kind of his job. He is an angel after all. And so, working sort of with Crowley to the same end, they manage to royally mess things up. First of all, they ensure that the son of the devil, the Antichrist himself, is not raised in circumstances that he was supposed to be raised in. He, in fact, ends up in a very nice, very boring, very calm, rural English family. And instead of getting a name like Damien, he's just Johnny. And instead of getting a hell... Well, he does get a hellhound assigned to him. But by this time, he's like nine or ten years old. He's got a group of, you know, fairly predictable nine or ten year old friends. They've got a little gang. They build dens in the woods. And what he really wants is not a hellhound, but a dog. And so when his hellhound appears, it is forced to take on the characteristics of 
his master's desires. And because he really wants just a dog, just an ordinary little mongrel type dog, that's what the hellhound becomes. And so on and so on and so on. And eventually, well, the Antichrist sort of thwarts Armageddon himself because he's not really keen on the idea. And it's a it's a wonderful examination of pop culture and horror movies and horror tropes. And it's a meditation on the nature of good and evil. And that if anyone tells you they're 100% either one, they're probably not telling you the truth. And it's very English. It's not even British. It's very, very English. And it's also very definitely, very definitely, if you know the work of both authors, as I do, it's very definitely a collaboration. It's not a Terry Pratchett story. It's not a Neil Gaiman story. It's a Pratchett and Gaiman story. Now, season one of Good Omens was the whole of the book. There was no more Good Omens left to tell. And we're doing season two anyway. Now, Gaiman has said that he's working from notes that he and Terry came up with, obviously while Terry was still alive, uh, that they never had time to actually work up into anything finished because, you know, well, he's Neil Gaiman and he was Terry Pratchett. They were both exceptionally busy people. And what with, you know, Gaiman's initially comics commitments and then screenwriting commitments, he never had time to work on it. And at the times he did have time to work on it, Pratchett was working on more Discworld stuff. And basically they, they, they just never managed to get together to work together properly again. And therefore, Gaiman is taking Terry's input and working it up. And I guess I'm cool with that. I'm just nervous about it for two reasons. First of all, however much I adore Gaiman's writing, and I do, Gaiman is a very different writer to Pratchett. And I'm not sure whether Gaiman will bring enough of Pratchett's sensibilities into this piece of work to make it feel right. That makes sense. The other thing that makes me slightly apprehensive about it is how clear Pratchett was when he died that that's it. What I've done, I've done. What I haven't finished, that is not to be finished. To the extent that he left very strict instructions that his computer hard drive was to be destroyed. And those wishes were honoured. Um, his longtime friend and um, business partner, stroke um, secretary, Stephen Briggs, uh, drove a steamroller over his hard drive because uh, that's just the most Pratchett thing that ever happened ever. And yet we're doing this. And... I guess the reason I'm apprehensive rather than absolutely outraged by it is Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett were very good friends. And so if Gaiman thinks this is all right, then I have to take his word for it. Because, frankly, I met Terry Pratchett twice in my life. Um, and each of those meetings were 
easily less than two minutes long. Gaiman knew Pratchett well. So if Gaiman says Pratchett wouldn't have minded, then I have to take his word for it. It's just... <laughs> it's that feeling. And, and I guess really what it is, is I want this so, so much. Because it is just another little bit of Pratchett that I can have in my life. If, if, if it is. And I, I think what is concerning me is how will I feel if I can't detect any Pratchett in this thing that I so, so, so want Pratchett to be in? More than that, what if it sucks? What if it's awful? What if it's terrible? Ah. And this, my friends, I guess is geekery because most people are just going to watch it and it'll be, you know, yeah, whatever, it's fine or it's not fine or I really like David Tennant in it. And I know that so many fans who are fans of the show and not the book and who are fans of David Tennant or Michael Sheen rather than Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, they're just looking forward to it because they want more of the thing they like. And I understand that. And most people will simply watch it on that level. I guess it's not anybody else's problem that it means so much to me and that I am bringing so much baggage to it. It's my baggage. But that is, I guess, the nature of being a geek. We are unapologetic about loving the things we love and we are perhaps a little bit extreme. Ah, so, but yes, that's news though, wasn't it? That was news. Um, Start date for Good Omen Season 2, July the 28th. Just in time for me to be not at home and not to have access to Amazon Prime. So my timing sucks, but there you go. What else is happening in the news? Well, funny you should ask. Well, over at Disney Plus, there is... Is it bad news? I mean, it is if you just look at Disney Plus's bottom line. The great currency in this modern world of streaming is not ratings, it's subscribers. In a very real sense, it actually doesn't matter to a streaming service who is watching their shows and how many people are watching their shows, so long as lots of people are paying their monthly subscription. If they are, then the streaming service doesn't actually have to care that much about whether they're watching the service or not. All they need to care about is, can we keep our subscribers? Now, obviously... If no one's watching their content, sooner or later, everyone is going to stop subscribing. So I'm not saying the two things are unrelated. I'm just saying who is watching what and how many people are watching what is not the immediate concern. The immediate concern is how many people are forking out their monthly fee. And at Disney, they've got a problem because globally, they are losing subscribers hand over fist. Now, while they are losing subscribers in the million, it's not necessarily as bad as it sounds. One of the big markets for Disney Plus was India. And one of the things they had on Disney Plus in India is the Indian Premier League. The biggest, and I say this reluctantly as a fan of English county cricket, um, but probably the most exciting cricket tournament in the world. Uh, it's something special, the IPL. And in India, Disney Plus had those games. Now, in India, cricket is everything. If you think people are crazy about football in the UK, you have no idea 
how mad for cricket people in India are. Your average Indian, they like cricket nearly as much as I do. That's saying something, let me tell you. So, obviously, naturally, clearly, just as, as soon as Sky got the Football Premier League here in the UK exclusively, a huge, huge number of British people went out and got Sky. Even if they had no interest in watching anything else that Sky had, of course they went out and got Sky because they needed. They didn't want. This is not how this works if you're a, a fanatic about something. They needed to watch their team play football. I understand this. I, I don't feel that need for, for football myself, but I understand it. I feel similarly about many shows that I've signed up to screaming services. I've, having said, having said on this show, I was absolutely not going to be forking out for more streaming services. I forked out for Paramount Plus. I am, I am going to cancel it, but I did fork out for Paramount Plus just so that I could watch Star Trek Picard a day earlier. So, yeah, I understand needing to buy Sky to get the football. And just as many British people needed to buy Sky to get the football, loads of people in India bought Disney Plus to get the cricket. And then, for whatever reason, and I genuinely don't know, I haven't looked it up, and I suspect I wouldn't find a straight answer on the internet even if I did, but for whatever reason, Disney Plus lost the Indian Premier League. Presumably, the IPL has migrated to a different service, presumably a different paid service. I could have looked this up. I didn't because it doesn't overlap my geekiness enough. But that means that all the people who had Disney Plus in India just to watch the cricket have migrated. Of course, they've cancelled their Disney Plus subscription and they'll have used that money that they've saved to buy a subscription to whatever service has the IPL now. That translates as a huge reduction in Disney Plus's global subscription numbers because India is so big. It is now the most populous country in the world, according to the United Nations. So if if a significant chunk of that population decides to do something, it makes a pretty big ripple. So on that level, it's not that alarming that Disney Plus's numbers are tanking quite as fast as they are. However, on the level that subscribers are money, and money is what keeps this thing alive, that is concerning, because it also represents a significant drop in revenue. I can't say whether this is related, but Disney Plus has also recently said it is going to reduce the amount of content that it has, and it's going to be a little bit less gung-ho about introducing new content to the platform in the future. And I'm not a media producer and I don't run a big TV studio or streaming company so I freely acknowledge that I don't really know what I'm talking about here but I'm the only person who thinks that's counterintuitive because surely if you want to attract new subscribers and you want to attract more subscribers the more you can offer them the better surely does that not make sense? And given that, I mean, I get cutting back on new production. I get that because new production is expensive if you're going to do it right. And, you know, I, I think I have made a criticism of Disney and Disney Plus over the last year or so that they are doing too much at once. And it would be better, perhaps, if they pulled their horns in on new production a little bit 
and made less stuff, but better. But pulling back stuff that's already on the platform, how does that make sense? I mean, I don't see that there's a huge cost saving there. And, well, it's stuff they own. I mean, the whole point now is that because Disney own everything, and they really do, I mean, they own you know, all the Disney stuff, all the Touchstone stuff, which has always been part of Disney, all the Pixar stuff, that's all part of Disney. Disney own all of that. All the stuff that Fox made, which is an astonishing amount of stuff in both movies and TV terms, they own all that. I mean, if it, surely the only royalties they have to pay by having that on streaming is a small amount of residuals to the people who made it and, well, see the WGA strike at the beginning. They're not currently paying those residuals. So that's not a cost at present, unless this is a shot across the bows of the WGA and saying, well, if we're going to have to pay residuals, we just won't show it. But I can't see that the amount of residuals would be that that great. I can't see how that I can't see it would cost them enough money to make it worth doing. Bearing in mind that what it costs them is having so much stuff to attract people. So I don't know. I'm not sure what the logic of that is. I'm sure it makes sense to somebody there. I mean, Disney, I may not always agree with their decisions, but I'm not one of these people who just says they're all idiots because they're clearly, clearly not. So so there's that. I mean, is that a bother to me? Well, again, it, it, it causes me a little concern because there is quite a lot of stuff that is being made under the Disney Plus umbrella that I'm quite excited for and that I'd quite like to see. And just as I refuse to get excited about the Ray movie, from Star Wars until it's made. I I worry about all the things that have been announced that have got people so enthusiastic that perhaps now won't happen. And the reason that particularly worries me is not just because I'm not going to get the shows that I want. I mean, I'll be sad about that, but I'll get over it. But also, surely, if you get people excited about something, and then you tell them it's not going to happen. People lose their enthusiasm. And if people lose their enthusiasm, eventually they just stop. And that could kill the streamers entirely. So I don't think it makes good business sense to do things the way they're doing them. Netflix has a similar problem. Netflix has developed a reputation, deserved or not, it's deserved, for cancelling stuff just before it has chance to catch on. So yeah, they made season one of I Am Not Okay With This which if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend watching it were it not for the fact it ends on a massive cliffhanger, which will now never be resolved because they've cancelled it. Uh, Sense8 was an early victim of this kind of nonsense. Uh, so many other. I mean, there's, there are more than I can even begin to document now. Um, and so is it a surprise that people are unsubscribing from Netflix? I don't think it is. Because if you start to think, well, that's, that show sounds amazing, but I'm not going to bother watching it because they'll probably finish it halfway through um, and I'll never get a satisfactory resolution and that sucks. I, if people start to think that, and they have started to think that, then you know, why would you fork out $5.99 or $6.99 or $7.99 a month? And I know they keep ad advertising that as, oh, it's two cups of coffee or whatever it is. Well, first of all, I don't buy coffee in Starbucks. So... 7 
is two jars of coffee, as far as I'm concerned. That's a lot of cups of coffee. And in any case, that's not the point. People aren't going to pay for something if all it does is ultimately frustrate them. So, you see, I told you. I told you I could do more than one boring preachy part. And, yeah, step back off the hobby horse. This is supposed to be the news section. It's just I do get work. Well, like I need to tell you I get worked up about this stuff. You, you've probably picked up on that. Um, what else is happening in the news? Do you know what? Entertainment news? Nothing that excites me enough to report on it. So let's instead move on and talk about... start with just a very quick flash back to the launch of the starship because we do have a little bit more information since last we spoke on this subject uh it, it seems that the issues with the launch pad are slightly more responsible for the issue with the launch than i had previously appreciated it looks as though the shockwaves and possibly even actual debris from the launch did damage some of the Raptor engines. And if you look at video of the launch, you can see that not all of those Raptors are actually firing as the rocket flies. Now, I had I had seen that, but I had assumed that the, the rockets that weren't firing had been yeah, deliberately turned off because their thrust wasn't needed. That's something that you know you can do. One of the reasons for having liquid fueled engines is so that you can control the thrust um turns out that is not in fact the case what happened was that some of the engines didn't fire properly which meant that they didn't have enough thrust to get to orbit which meant that they had to burn the engines for longer than they otherwise would have done now because the first stage was still providing thrust at the point where the two stages should have separated the first and second stages couldn't separate because the thrust coming from the first stage was forcing the first stage up into the second stage. And so they couldn't separate. That is what caused the rocket to spin. And that is why the rocket was ultimately destroyed. Now, as I said last week, that was not a disaster. But again, as I said last week, this is further in indicating that it was a foolish launch. The launch pad wasn't properly set up. Now, it, it seems that Musk is now saying, and I don't know how true this is, but Musk is now saying that stage zero of the rocket, which is how Musk and therefore SpaceX refer to the launch pad, was being tested. They wanted to see what they could get away with. Because obviously, if you can not have things like acoustic baffling and stuff at the launch pad, that saves you a bunch of money and Starship as a program is all about cutting costs to make getting stuff to space more affordable. That's why the rocket is built out of steel. That's so many, so many decisions on Starship come from the need to keep the cost down. All well and good. But it does seem that Musk's engineers were saying, now this is a corner we cannot cut. We need this. And Musk, who I keep emphasizing this, is not an engineer and doesn't know what he's talking about, overall them. That was a bad decision. He has walked it back uh, and he is now saying, and I, I 
the way these press releases are worded, the way these statements are worded, it does feel like spin. It's now being presented as this was always a test flight. We were also testing the robustness of the launch pad. We now know that the launch pad cannot take that force. We didn't know that before. So we have learned a thing and we will modify the launch pad to include the acoustic baffling and the water suppression and all of all of that. Uh, because, you know, now we know it's necessary and therefore we're spending money on. And yeah, OK, whatever you say, Elon, whatever you say, as long as you do it right, because the FAA in America is still taking a very dim view of what happened at that launch. And if they hold Starship back, that will impact on Artemis. And if that happens... NASA is going to take a very hard look at SpaceX. And SpaceX can't afford to lose that partnership with NASA, not at the moment. But equally, I don't think NASA can really afford to lose Artemis. So both sides have each other over a barrel, and that's not usually a helpful situation to be in. So what else is happening in space, and is any of it good? Well, cautiously, actually, yes, there is some good news in space, and it even involves SpaceX. Basically. There is a possibility, just a possibility, that the first non-governmental commercial spacewalk mission could fly this summer. Uh, it would be... This is a huge deal because space is hard. Getting people into space is hard. SpaceX has done that. Blue Origin kinda has, Virgin Galactic kinda says it has and maybe has a point, but it hasn't really. But it's hard. Getting people into space and then out of their spacecraft whilst they are in space has been achieved, as far as I am aware, by three nations. Nations. Not companies, nations. The Americans have done it, obviously, uh, starting with Gemini back in the 60s. I mean, it's not like this is old, you know, sort of brand new technology. There's old technology having done this, but it's still hard and ridiculously expensive. Uh, the Russians did it first uh, with the Vostok um, and Voxod systems. And I believe that the Chinese have also done it. Although I'm not quite sure how much information we have about that. But that's it. No one else has done it. The idea that a private company might do it is actually, to me, quite exciting. And it would be a stepping stone towards the first launch of Starship. So what we've got is a mission called Polaris Dawn. Now, this was initially scheduled to launch at the end of last year, 2022. But it was delayed because additional training, it was felt, was required for its civilian crew. Modifications were, modifications? Modifications were also required for the Crew Dragon capsule to carry the crew man, that was designed to carry the crew members into space. Now, billionaire, yes, another billionaire, uh, Jared Isaacman, uh, who is funding and will command the mission, and I have some reservations about that, um, has said in response to a question on Twitter 
So again, consider the source. But he said that he's optimistic that late summer is still a real possibility. That's late summer this year. So back end of August, September time. That is what Isaacman says they are training towards. Um, now, Isaacman, I, I am cynical about billionaires going into space and commanding space missions. But this guy is a veteran. He has been to space before. He commanded the Inspiration4 mission. Um, he has said that when it finally does get up there, uh, the Polaris Dawn mission will be a crew of four. Uh, Isaacman himself, uh, somebody called uh, Anna Menon, Scott Puttet and Sarah Gillis. None of the team are trained astronauts, but they are all people with experience in aviation and in spaceflight operations. So we'll give them that. Uh, they will lift off aboard a crew driven capsule on top of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket uh, from Launch Complex 39A at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. They will then taking it, be taking advantage of the Falcon 9 and Dragon's performance and pushing it as far as they can take it, flying higher than any Dragon mission to date uh, and endeavoring to reach the highest Earth orbit ever flown. That is to say, an Earth orbit that remains within orbit around the Earth. And I presume by that they mean crude Earth orbit rather than any old thing orbiting because, you know, there are quite a lot of things very far out. I can't believe they would be bothered going that far. But anyway, uh, once they reach their maximum orbit, they will then perform a spacewalk, which they are saying will be, as a result of being in the highest orbit, the highest altitude spacewalk ever undertaken, the first commercial spacewalk, and the first spacewalk out of a Crew Dragon capsule. Now, they're calling that record-breaking. Uh, I'm saying it's just first. You're not breaking the record if it's the first time it's been done. But anyway. Uh, now, they're also intending to help to further space science by flying through the Van Allen radiation belt. Um, that's brave. Um, the Van Allen radiation belt is almost certainly quite dangerous. They are very seriously putting themselves at risk here. And yeah, I think one of the reasons this might be a commercial enterprise is because I'm not sure NASA's risk assessments would allow them to do it. But that's all supposed to be a stepping stone towards humans flying on board Starship. Now, before that can possibly happen, the Polaris program must carry its first two Falcon 9 missions. Um, fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, interestingly, the first set of crew Starship missions is scheduled to be private stuff as well. Um, so they're not intending to use Starship to go to the ISS, for instance. They're not intending to do a, a NASA mission first. They're going to do a private mission first. Uh, that is slated to be Polaris 3. Um, clearly, no date is set for that. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, that's all happening again. Against the background, of course, of uh, the Japanese billionaire, yes, another one, uh, Yuzaku Meizawa. I don't think I've ever heard his last name pronounced out loud. I hope I got that right. Apologies to any Japanese speakers. Uh, who has chartered a starship for his Dear Moon mission, which will take him and eight artists on the first all-civilian mission around the moon. A sort of Apollo 8 kind of job, uh, but with artists 
I'm kind of excited for that one, to be honest. It's utterly pointless in terms of uh, engineering or science. Uh, but in terms of human experience, I think potentially quite powerful. Uh, at the same time, massive vanity project. And, you know, it's missions like that that geeks like me get excited about and people who don't give a monkeys about space point at and say, could you not, you know, cure world hunger or something instead? Those missions obviously are dependent on the success of Starship, which, as previously mentioned, is experiencing some issues right now. But it, we do at least have causes for optimism. And we also have cause for optimism in the uncrewed area of space exploration, which we'll talk about more next week because there's quite a lot going on. Um, we haven't mentioned the, J the James Webb Space Telescope for a while, and there's all kinds of good stuff coming from JWST. There's the JUICE mission, which honestly has the most forced name of any NASA project I can currently think of, but is still massively exciting. And NASA is pushing Congress for more money for planetary science. So there's lots of exciting stuff happening in robotic space exploration, which we don't have time to talk about now, so we will concentrate on that next week. And on that optimistic note, we will move along. Okay, we are running out of time, and so we had better take a quick look at the Geek Community Notice Board. Now, I'm going to point you at the social medias of the Geek Retreat on Oxford Street. Again, uh, there's just too much going on there. I'm always going to keep mentioning them because there is so much going on there. If you are a geek, there is probably an event happening uh, and in any given week that will probably interest you. So do go to their social medias. They're particularly available on Facebook if you want to find out their schedules. Uh, they're also on Instagram. I know that. Uh, so check them out. Uh, it would take too long to go through everything they're doing. Uh, just to say, this is not a paid endorsement. I don't do paid endorsements on this show. I just like them. And I think what they're doing is really important. So take a look. See if anything catches your fancy. And just drop in and say hello. Tell them I sent you. Actually, don't do that. A couple of firm dates for your diary, though. Uh, our friends at the Geek Pub Quiz have, of course, the Geek Pub Quiz at Major Tom's Social on... Um, Sunday, the 21st of May, half past seven, kickoff. Uh, you don't really want to be late. It is a great evening, as is the Geeky Movie Quiz, which is held upstairs from our very good selves, although we're closed when it happens, uh, at the Everyman Cinema Harrogate in the bar uh, sort of cafe area of the Everyman. Uh, again, starting at half past seven on Thursday, the 25th of May. It's a brilliant midweek evening out. Uh, Fantastic movie quizzes uh, sponsored this week or this month uh, by Women on Tap. So you might want to check that out as well. Both quizzes are huge fun, but also satisfyingly challenging. Steve and Helen, who write the quiz, are immense geeks, immensely knowledgeable. And they've got a real knack for putting together a quiz that will challenge anyone, however much knowledge they have. But won't make people who are new to it feel, you know, sort of overwhelmed or put off. So great evening, either of them. 
uh, go and check those out. If you've been to one before, then you know how good they are. If you haven't, what have you been doing? You listen to me for an hour a week, but you've not been to the Geek Pub Quiz. Seems odd. So, yeah, check those out. And also, a little bit of BSP, that blatant self-promotion. If you are a business in Harrogate, uh, I would like to hear from you about whether or not you would like to be involved in the art trail for Thought Bubble in November. Uh, From your point of view, all you need to do is lend us some wall space and hopefully watch the customers roll in. Uh, I will be actually actively approaching businesses as well. But if anyone listening to this is particularly keen to get involved, I'd love to hear from you. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Also, in the run-up to Thought Bubble, I am pushing my autobiographical comics thing. Now, I've been asked by a couple of people for more information. And, um, okay, we're looking really for artwork that is produced at an A4 or A3 sort of level. Certainly that ratio. Uh, I suspect what we finally produce will be A5 in size. So if you are working at A4 or A3, do bear in mind that whatever you produce will be reduced in size. So really tiny writing, possibly not a brilliant idea. But all we're looking for is something short. Okay, I don't think anybody really has time, particularly not if you are new to this game, to produce a 20-page story comic. So something short. Um, Three or four pages of comic in total, I think is all we're looking for. If you would like some examples, then that's tricky. I would point you at things like Quarantine Comics, which were produced by Rachel Smith during the pandemic. Uh, The book is available, but she also posted all of her four panel strips. She wasn't even writing multi-page strips. She was producing cartoon strips that were four panels or so long. She posted all of those to Instagram, and you can probably still find them if you go to Rachel Smith's Instagram feed. So, you know, do that anyway. Rachel's a brilliant follow on Instagram. I'm, I'm struggling to think of any other examples. I've probably got loads in the shop. So actually, if you are a Harrogate local and you want to have a go at this, then maybe just drop into the shop and see me. Uh, Come in on a Wednesday or a Saturday, because then you'll be sure that I'll be there, uh, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. I can't put it online, because I would be in breach of copyright if I did. So that's awkward, but, you know, uh, I'm hoping to put together a little package of information and guidance that I will put up on our website as and when it's finished that will maybe show you the ropes. And of course, I will be running some workshops in Harrogate uh, at various places for various different types of people over the next couple of months as well. So maybe you'll get a chance to come to one of those. I suddenly realised that there are 30 seconds of this show left to go, and I've covered about a quarter of what I wanted to get covered this week. I don't have time to do an extra episode, however, so I'm just going to have to try and pack even more into next week. I'm going to have to leave it there. I can see the needle getting close to the hour. Clearly, I should waffle less. Anyway, we will be back next week with hopefully all of the things that I couldn't squeeze into this week and even more. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay safe and stay geeky.
We will see you very soon. Bye now.